0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Hello, this is Pastor Mark. I wanted to take advantage of... Snow cancellation to share a few words about our ongoing sermon series in the book of Romans. Before I do that, though, I'd like to to let you hear from Paul the Apostle some words that he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you read the whole chapter, you'll see that, that Paul gives a beautiful summary of the gospel and what it is that God is accomplishing through the gospel. But towards the end of the chapter, You hear these words. This is starting in chapter 5, verse 20. Paul writes, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Did you hear those words? For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Paul is talking about Christ there. Christ knew no sin, but for our sake he was made to be sin. He carried the burden of our sin. As you're preaching through the book of Romans, and as you are listening along with me, you see that, that in order to get through Romans, we have to spend a lot of time talking and teaching about sin. Chapter 1 opens up that theme, but in chapter 2, Paul will be talking about sin. In chapter 3, he'll be talking about sin. In fact, this talk about sin, the doctrine of sin, is going to be essential to everything that he's teaching in the book of Romans. But sometimes you can feel like, wow, it's a lot. It's a lot of sin, week after week, to continually have the topic of sin to deal with can be fatiguing. And to be honest, it can make us a little bit uncomfortable as well. Talking about sin does tend to make us uncomfortable. A couple of reasons for that. Obviously, one of them is that we're all sinners, and nobody likes to be called out on their sin. It's uh, almost a cliche, this idea of sitting in church and hearing a sermon and feeling like everything that's being said is directed at you. I can assure you it's not the case. Whenever I'm calling out sin from the pulpit, oftentimes it's my own sin that is first and foremost in my mind. But of course, the Spirit uses the preaching of the Word to bring conviction to all of us, and all of us are sinners, and none of us like to have our noses rubbed in it. As much as we talk about salvation by grace and not relying on works, all of us, by nature, like to be assured that we are good people, that we are getting through life well, that we're not making bad choices, and when we do fall into sin, we don't like to have it pointed out. And That's the reason why, even in the church, where you would think that, that we would be very forthright in talking about sin, can actually get a little bit uncomfortable. It's not just that we're sinners, though. It's also that we're Christians, and as Christians, we're conscious of the fact that this talk about sin, this perpetual harping on the fact of sin, is one of the things that makes people outside the church believe that Christians are really self-righteous people. Whenever we approach, as we will in Romans chapter 1 towards the end, uh, a list of all of the sins that uh, you shouldn't commit, the the things that if you do them, you should expect to have no part in eternal life. When we get to those lists, we feel uncomfortable about them because we imagine what these words sound like to people who are outside the church and and how we sound when we're saying them. Whenever you call out someone for their sin or you declare, oh, that's wrong in the eyes of God, the automatic assumption is that you yourself are not guilty of this, that you're calling uh, for condemnation of someone else, and you yourself are pure. And because we know we're not pure, because we know that we are sinners, oftentimes we bend over backwards to avoid giving the impression of self-righteousness. And because of that, because we're so conscious of the misunderstandings surrounding the Bible's teaching on sin, oddly, we have become prone to not talking about it at all or talking about it in very uh, soft voices so as not to give much offense. But let me ask you a question. If we allow these tendencies of ours, this desire not to have our own sin pointed out, also not to to, to convince the world or reveal to the world that we are um, self-righteous hypocrites, if we allow those fears to rule over what parts of the Bible we're willing to talk about, um, I think we do face a challenge. Let me put the question this way. If you don't talk about the problem, how can you talk about the solution? If the gospel is the solution to the problem of sin, if Jesus came into the world in order to deliver sinners from condemnation, how can we make sense of that solution if we've stopped talking about the problem entirely? It's as if Jesus has come into the world to do something that doesn't need doing. He's come into the world to solve a problem that doesn't need solving. And this is why I think you'll see, even amongst well-meaning Christians, those of us who intentionally avoid talking about sin inevitably are forced to change the way we talk about Jesus and what Jesus came to do. If we're not allowed to talk about the real problem, we have to find other problems for Jesus to solve. You get the idea. And the thing is, as we work through Romans, you see that that really Paul, when he presents the work of Jesus, he presents it through this context of sin. Like it's important to him to lay this foundation of sin in order to make work uh, make Make sense of the work of the Savior, so it's important for us to talk about sin, and honestly, thinking of the fears that keep us from doing that, maybe the problem isn't talking about sin so much as it is talking in the wrong way about sin. So bear with me here. I want to suggest that we do need to be talking about sin, because the Bible does, but we need to be careful about talking about it in the right way. So one thing we want to avoid is being hypocritical, obviously. I talked about this already, but it's possible to talk about sin um, as if it's the sins of other people that are the problem, not my own. All of us admit that we're sinners, but it's possible to admit that you're a sinner and still give the impression that you don't really think your own sin is as serious an issue as the sins of other people. And oftentimes I think this is this is not just a, a, a charge that's leveled up against Christians but one that we could probably plead guilty to when I think about the way that I personally, Have approached this question of sin, I will admit, when when I'm grieved about sin in the world, when I'm depressed about the direction that things are going in, it's typically not my own sinfulness that leads me to despair. It's looking at what's going on, quote unquote, out there. It's the sins of other people that I'm I'm becoming morbidly fixated on. That's not the right way to think about sin when the Bible teaches about sin, we need to see first and foremost our own implication, our own condemnation in that. So let's not talk hypocritically about sin. Let's not talk as if the real problem of sin is not the sins we've committed, it's the bad things others have done. Let's focus on our own shortcomings, first and foremost. So, Being hypocritical, that's a bad way, a wrong way to talk about sin. But here's another way to talk about sin that I would argue is wrong. It's to talk about sin in a revisionist way. And I think this is is more and more common for Christians today, because let's face it, we are products of our culture, and our culture takes a very different view of, of right and wrong, good and evil, than the one that you'll find in Scripture. I mean, there are some similarities. There are some things the Bible condemns that our culture still condemns, but there are a lot of things that the Bible condemns that our culture doesn't condemn or even celebrates. And as a result of that, I think a lot of times we're tempted to invest our uh, outrage, our sense of, of the wrongness of sin. We direct it towards the sins that that society agrees with us on. So we, we channel that passion into things that are unarguably wrong, and where there's disagreement, we soften our condemnation. We uh, we change the rules. The Bible condemns something, but we don't disapprove of it. We don't have a problem with it. It doesn't bother us. And so we treat those things as if they're not really sins Anymore. Not the same kind of thing. And as a result, we talk about sin, but in a hollowed-out way, not the way that, that Scripture speaks about it. Now, the problem here is theological. The hypocritical approach is a problem, obviously, because it implies that, that I'm not the problem, that my sins are not the problem, that they're outside the scope of of the problem that that grace needs to solve. The revisionist approach is similarly problematic though, because it suggests that certain sins are no longer inside that that circle of condemnation either that those two are not things that need to be addressed that grace needs to tackle. You see the problem with that as well in both cases what we 're really doing is we're taking some area of life that Scripture sees as corrupted by sin and in need of transformation by grace, and we're saying, oh, actually, no, that's okay. That part's okay. That part doesn't need Jesus the way the Bible thinks it does. These ways of talking about sin are problems, I think, because really, at the heart, they're just another way of not talking about sin, a way of not talking about the problem, because they're taking certain sins and making them less sinful. Essentially, we're letting ourselves off the hook. If I don't agree with Scripture that this is sinful, then, then it's not. If I don't agree that my own transgressions are as bad as anyone else's, then they're not. We let ourselves off the hook. And that's the problem. Because Paul would tell you, you don't have the power to let yourself or anyone else off the hook. That's what Jesus came to do. So why is it so important that we be willing to walk with Paul through this teaching on sin, this doctrine of sin, chapter by chapter, verse by verse? Why should we be grateful to spend so many weeks working through Paul's teaching on sin? Apart from the obvious, of course, obviously it's in the Bible. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable to us. All scripture, whatever is there, should be uh, teached from the pulpit and it should be meditated on uh, in our hearts. But beyond that, why is it important? Practically speaking, why does this matter so much? Well, Let me give you one thing that's not going to become clear in Romans, probably until chapter 5, but it's important to keep in mind even now. And that's this. You can't understand the work of Jesus without understanding the work of Adam. This is another way of saying that salvation only makes sense in the context of sin. By the time we reach chapter 5, we're going to get to Paul's famous analogy comparing Adam and Christ. And we're going to see that if we want to grasp the gospel, we have to understand it as Jesus doing what Adam failed to do, and also Jesus refusing to do what Adam did. So Adam was not able to be perfectly obedient, but Christ came into the world and Christ was perfectly obedient. Adam succumbed to temptation. He transgressed. Jesus resisted temptation. He was perfect. And because of that perfect righteousness of Jesus, there's now a a righteousness of God that can be imputed to us, and that brings about our salvation. Now, that work of salvation only makes sense in the context of sin. Because one of the things it it reminds us is that the, the worse sin is, the better grace has to be the worse the predicament of sin is, then the, the, the more glorious, the more extreme the work of salvation has to be. When Paul is insisting on the sinfulness of all human beings, when he's quoting the prophet Isaiah saying, there are none who are righteous, not even one. What he's doing is he's showing us that the problem is as big as it could possibly be, that sin has corrupted as much as it possibly could, that things are so much more destroyed and devastated by sin than we ever imagined. And the reason that he's able to make such a complete case for the reign of sin is that he's, he's by contrast, preparing the way for us to appreciate the greatness of the work of salvation, of the reign of grace. So that the whole gospel we suddenly see, by the time Paul reaches in chapter 5, this analogy between Adam and Jesus, we can see clearly that the whole gospel has pointed towards this this reign of grace. It was all so that grace could conquer sin. And you can't really understand that. You can't grasp the glory of it unless you first laid a foundation of sin. There's another reason, though, why sin is important. And and for this, I want to share with you a a quote from G.K. Chesterton, his book, Orthodoxy. Chesterton says that sin is the only part of Christian theology which can actually be proved. Let me give you the whole context for this uh, passage so you see the point that he's making here. This is from his book, Orthodoxy. There's going to be a few references here to events in his day, which we won't get into, but you'll get the gist of it from this quote. Chesterton writes, Modern masters of science are much impressed with the need of beginning all inquiry with a fact. The ancient masters of religion were quite equally impressed with that necessity. They began with the fact of sin, a fact as practical as potatoes. Whether or not man could be washed in miraculous waters, there was no doubt at any rate that he wanted washing. But certain religious leaders in London, not mere materialists, have begun in our day not to deny the highly disputable water, but to deny the indisputable dirt. Certain new theologians dispute original sin, which is the only part of Christian theology which can really be proved. Some followers of the Reverend R.J. Campbell in their almost too fastidious spirituality admit divine sinlessness, which they cannot see even in their dreams, but they essentially deny human sin, which they can see in the street. The strongest saints and the strongest skeptics alike took positive evil as the starting point of their argument. In other words... When you're talking about sin, you're talking about something everyone can see. There's an apologetic value to the doctrine of sin, in other words, because sin is a reality that we all have access to. There are a thousand different solutions to what's wrong with the world, but everyone has agreed that something is wrong. That's an important reason for us not to give up On the doctrine of sin, not to stop talking about sin, because this is actually a point in Christian theology which resonates with people who deny every other aspect of it. They see that the world is not as it should be. They see that something is not right. They don't accept things as they are. They don't act as if morality is merely a social construct and there is no such thing as good and evil. In the face of real evil, people feel the wrongness of it. If we stop talking about the reality of evil, we lose that. We lose that bridge of connection. And I think it's important that we not. So, I understand that plowing weak after week, verse by verse, through Paul's doctrine of sin. If we lose the larger context, it can occasionally become depressing. It can feel like you're never going to reach the end of it, that, that every week we get to kind of a new rung on the ladder of human depravity. But what you need to understand is this, that there is light at the end of that tunnel, that there will be grace to come. But in order for us to, to recognize that grace and to see that grace as the precious gift that it truly is, we first have to come to terms with the reality of sin. That's why it's important to talk about sin, and, and not just to talk about it, but to confess it before God, to seek forgiveness for that sin, and above all, to put our trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of that sin. In the weeks to come, I hope you will keep this in mind. As we work through the rest of chapter 1, and work through chapter 2, and into chapter 3, you'll begin to see how important this doctrine of sin is to the rest of the gospel. And I hope that the time that we've spent here will transform your understanding of the Bible's teaching on sin, so that it's something you're not embarrassed to talk about, something that you're not uh, looking to minimize, but actually something that you're willing to embrace so that the greatness of grace can shine through. Thank you for listening.